Welcome to the Cloud Architects Podcast, a podcast about cloud, technology, and the people using it. The Cloud Architects Podcast is sponsored by Kemp Technologies. Choose Kemp to optimize your multi-cloud application deployments and simplify multi-cloud application management. A single pane of glass for application delivery, Kemp provides a 360-degree view of your entire application environment and even third-party ADCs. Download Kemp 360 for free today at kemptechnologies.com. Welcome to the Cloud Architects podcast. Coming again from Microsoft Ignite in sunny Orlando. We're having a great time in Orlando. We are um, enjoying the privilege of interviewing guests on all kinds of subject matter because they are here and they are handy. So welcome from myself, Nicholas Blank, and Christopher Goosen. Hello. And today we have the pleasure of having a guest who is no stranger to the governance world and all things online. So welcome to the show and we're going to ask you to introduce yourself and tell sure. us what you do. Sure. So thank you. Uh, my name is Antonio Mayo. I'm uh, a senior enterprise architect with Protivity and I'm based in Canada, in Ottawa specifically. I'm also a uh, seven-time Microsoft MVP in yeah. Office 365 and SharePoint. Very well done on that one. Now, your focus as an MVP is on SharePoint Online, is that correct? Very much so. That, that quickly takes us into many of the other services, though. Yes. It's hard to just focus these days on only SharePoint. You'll find that, or I think the general experience with an Office 365 is very much like Exchange, is that SharePoint is service glue. It's behind a lot of the things that you just take for granted that are there. Very much so. Yeah, uh, especially when you think about things like OneDrive for Business, which sits on SharePoint, Teams, which includes a SharePoint team site, and so yeah. on. And so on, yeah. Um, some of the portal ranging that happens is also dependent on, on SharePoint. If you'd like to publish a report, yes. that happens through SharePoint. We That's have right. some Power BI stuff that just happens on SharePoint. Very much so. Yeah. 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 So today, we want to talk about something which has got absolutely nothing to do with auditing and necessarily compliance, we're going to talk about governance. That's a big word though. That's it, a bomb, right? You've just dropped a bomb. It's a bomb. And we think governance is like, and that's why I said it's got nothing to do with, uh, I'm going to switch off auditing, right? Auditing, I'm gone. Someone, Someone's asleep in the room when I mention the word auditing. And I'd like to preface, what does governance mean in this discussion and kind of the problem that we've got in the cloud world? So, the issue that we have with cloud is that it's too easy. And I can just switch stuff on or it gets switched on for me. Correct. And I have my director or my manager or a security officer or just generally a governance person, someone who's responsible for the governing, which could be anyone from an administrator through to a manager, director, a C-suite a member saying, Nick, where is my stuff, hmm. right? Who can access it under what circumstances? Yep. And why am I being surprised by things I didn't know? And that's really easy to happen in the cloud world where a lot of the adoption practices that we're seeing is, let's just, um, 
let's just try something out, right? So I've licensed something, I've got Active Directory replicating, or, or maybe even not, I'm, maybe I'm just creating users in, in the service, mm -hmm. and I see these buttons, and one of them, for example, for OneDrive is, let me install the sync client, right? Yep. While I'm syncing stuff, and then I go to the portal, and in the portal, I have all these amazing abilities that just light up in the default experience. I haven't done anything. I haven't governed, and I'm going to use this word a few times. I haven't governed the experience for my portal, right. or sorry, for my tenant or for my users. And all of a sudden, I've got anonymous sharing going on, right? Yep. And you think, well, what's the big deal? We're supposed to be sharing anonymously. Except if you are in a regulated industry, if you have corporate data in a personal space, yep. and it's being shared in a way that as far as the company is concerned, who owns the data is unexpected. That's right. That's right. So you've touched on a great point that, especially in a cloud environment, and especially in one like Office 365, Microsoft is working on great new services all the time, and when they get launched, they're often on by default. By default. Yeah, we saw this with one of the clients that um, I had to do an audit for about two years ago when Office 365 Groups was first lit up. Before the IT and information security team was able to understand even what Office 365 groups were, this organization of 11,000 users um, started saw this and started creating them. And suddenly they had 40 groups on their hands within a couple of, um, couple of weeks. Some of them were just test groups or playing around, but some of them were real. Yeah. And people were storing data on there. And then suddenly the IT team has, you know, they have a, an effort on their hands where they have to rein this in. They have to stop this and they have to migrate that stuff to somewhere else uh, um, so that, bef you know, before they have a chance to understand what groups are, what the implications of those are to security and compliance and information and sensitive data, um, and then roll them out in a proper way. So very much so. We see that all the time. Do you mind for the, the, the IT pro or the, the manager, anyone really who's listening to this podcast, what is the difference between a, what we think of as a group, which is, should actually be called a, an Office 365 group? Correct. Because it's not a distribution group. That's it's right. not a security group, although it can be used for some of that. Correct. And we have teams. Yes. So what is the difference and when do I use either? So I will give you my opinion on this because there's a number of opinions floating Please. around. Um, it took me a while to understand this as well because there's overlapping services within there, right? Yeah. Which makes it confusing for a lot of people. So I like to think of Office 365 groups as a membership service so that when you need to have a group of people get together and collaborate on something, whether that's with a calendar or an, an email mailbox or distribution list or a site, um, you can create a group and that gives a space, a collaboration space for people to to work. Yeah. The group really is just the membership service to me. When groups were first released, it had this nice little interface where you could have a notebook and a calendar and a mailbox and a OneDrive site. Um, we have started to tell people to ignore that UI and to use Teams instead. Mm -hmm. Because from a UI perspective, those two things overlap heavily. And I have a really hard time justifying when to use the UI in groups versus the UI in Teams. Yeah. Teams does tend to provide a richer experience for collaboration, and Microsoft seems to be working much more actively on the user experience there than the user experience in groups. Yeah. So that's why I tend to think of groups as the membership service for Teams. I hope that makes sense. That makes sense. I think that makes a lot of sense. I think that's a really good way to look at it as well, right? Because I think very often 
that's the that's one of the, the big questions that a lot of companies have or a lot of customers have is yep. when do I use a group yep. versus a team versus Yammer yep. versus potentially something else, right? Correct. And, and 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 I think the answer to that does definitely depend on uh, depend for for every organization. It's not always going to be the same, but largely it depends on the audience type you're trying to reach. Agreed. Mm-hmm. Um, so we touched on something earlier. We were talking about. Um, Oh, ex- the example you mentioned where you know your customer had this group sprawl all of a sudden yep. really really quickly and I think what's difficult f- for an IT pro sometimes is that we're seen as uh, the the fun police because we want to yes. be enablers right and we want users to be able to use these technologies yes. but at the same time there's that governance word again right we, w- we want to make sure that they're using them in the right way yeah. Yeah. and that, that it's fit for purpose and they're That's not right. just um, it you know it's not just yet another data silo of yeah. stuff. How do we, how do we, or how do how does someone go about uh, starting to put down some some governance guidelines when it comes to some of these things? And we can use groups as an example for this because I think it makes yeah. a very good. Well, let me let me widen that okay. because I, I think that's a, it's a very relevant question, and I think where. Uh, to go back to my previous example, we find that how do we start using cloud services is like some somebody licenses something and we start using it and then something falls to the floor, right? And it could be performance, it could be the fact that data is leaking, could be something, right? So what we're finding, what works really well, and, and Microsoft actually has this model where they say sort out your physical layer first, sort out your networking. And something we speak about quite extensively is that the network that is built to browse, so web browsing. I have a proxy in place, I know where stuff is happening, I know how to govern my users through my firewall. So again, that the, the govern word comes up. But now, I need to consume cloud services, which is not the same thing. So we sorted out our physical layer, and I'm effectively cloud network ready. However, then as a company, I want to be governance ready for the services that I want to consume, which could be Exchange Online, could be SharePoint Online, could be Groups, could be Teams, could be Yammer. I need to know where do I start as a company with that governance layer. I've sorted out literally the physics of how do I connect to cloud and consume things. But now I want to know that as a consumer of cloud services, I'm going to be safe. Agreed. And the only way to be safe there is to know what I should govern, so what services am I using, and how to even govern them. So it's, it's much bigger than groups or teams or Yammer. I want to roll out cloud services as a customer. What is that how and how do I gain the how? So opinions on that topic differ depending on who you talk to, and you both raised great points about this. Um, I'm going to give you a long answer. Please. Um, I find it starts with the IT pro role, right? The IT pro role when an organization is digitally transforming or moving to the cloud, the IT, IT pro role needs to change. They need to move from being an IT admin to being a service owner, someone that owns the cloud service, right, who has responsibility over it. Yeah. And that helps to clearly state what that person's responsibilities are. And part of that needs to be governance. Yeah. And it needs to be understanding what features are coming, what new capabilities are coming, how features are changing, and um, figuring out how to roll those out in a well-planned, well-governed way, 
right? Because each new capability or service is going to require something different, Yeah. right? We had groups come out. We had teams come out. We had Planner come out. We had Power BI come out. There's changes to Power BI, and it goes on and on, to do and so on. Do you roll those out or do you not? When you roll those out, how do you roll those out? Which users is it going to affect? And what kind of training do you need to provide them so that they use them in a well-established manner? Mm-hmm. Where the opinion comes in is, I'm not a fan of just turn it all on. Because that has implications later on. When you end up with a mess, you have to clean it up. And I have been in the position too many times of having to go in and clean it up. So my preference if I'm running a tenant for an organization is roll these things out in a well-established way, a well-governed way. This to me all speaks of governance, right? You're rolling things out in a well-planned way so that you know, so people know what to expect and mm-hmm. how to use them, mm-hmm. right? So that you don't run into trouble. People don't start storing sensitive data on teams when they're not allowed to. So I think those are the start. How do we know that it's sensitive data? So great point. So when you get into this, so I just wanted to finish off on that point. Staying up to date with all that stuff, we know some of the capabilities Microsoft has provided for that, right? Access to the message center, receiving automatic notifications from the message center, having a well-defined group of people on the first release track so that you can try these features out and understand them before they come out and hit everybody else. All of those things are great tools for staying up to date with those things. And this, now, none of what you've spoken about is new. Correct. That's been around for quite a while. That's a great it's point. A, it's a methodology, though, and it's a way of thinking, yeah. though, yes. that may be new. Right? That's it's right. It's a culture That's right. that may be new. It is a culture shift for a lot of IT admins, a lot of architects. Um, now, when it comes to sensitive data and understanding what data is sensitive, there's, there's many ways to deal with that. Yeah. Um, over the last, I'll say, year, year and a half, Microsoft has released various tools to help us classify and identify sensitive data. Mm-hmm. Um, those tools, you know, they fall into certain categories. We had Azure Information Protection, which has now been renamed to Microsoft Information Protection. Um, we also had Office 365 labels. Yeah. And the way those were distinguished before was Azure Information Protection and its classification labels were for sensitivity and identifying sensitive data and protecting that sensitive data, whereas Office 365 labels were for retention. What they've now done, what they announced here tonight, is the merging of those two features and the renaming of it to Microsoft Information Protection. So now you create one set of classification labels that can deal with both retention and sensitivity and encryption. And you can even associate a DLP policy to those labels and I believe some access control policies as well. So that is one great feature to get into and look at and learn about. Um, What it does is it enables two things. One, end users are enabled to identify sensitive data. So we often think of the author of a document is probably best positioned to define this document contains sensitive data. Mm -hmm. But then it also provides you automatic scanning of documents looking for regular expressions and keywords. And that's also part of what's called advanced data governance. It's kind of bundled into a higher license level of Microsoft Information Protection. And really, the the marriage of those two features, so user-based classification and automatic classification, from my experience, it provides you kind of the best option for identifying sensitive data. Um, You know, just because a document contains the word secret doesn't mean it should be classified as secret. Right. Right. That's a very simple example that I use just to let you know that... um, both user-based classification has, you know, misclassification rates, mm-hmm. but so does automatic classification, mm-hmm. right? Regular expressions and keywords and, you know, heuristics and word patterns can only go so far. Sometimes it does require a person. Mm-hmm. So the marriage of those two I still think is the best option. So 
you know, we've gotten kind of into the compliance and security space at this point. Mm -hmm. You can talk about how governance is different from those things, and mm -hmm. I think it is. Yeah. I think at its core, governance is about understanding what kind of data you have, understanding what data is sensitive, where it lives, and who's supposed to have access to it. Sure. That requires being able to identify that data using tools like Office 365 labels, Microsoft Information Protection, but it also requires um, doing things like classifying sites, perhaps classifying people who work on sensitive projects, right? Because I've been in environments where when someone works on an ITAR project, and ITAR being the um, International Traffic and Arms Regulation, administered by the Department of State here in the US, mm -hmm. um, you have to control down to the individual who's allowed to see ITAR controlled data and not. Mm -hmm. And I've worked in environments where um, if someone is working on an ITAR related project, um, they have a mailbox in a completely separate tenant or a completely separate exchange server mm -hmm. because they don't want to intermix that data with um, non-sensitive data sure. or people that are not allowed to yeah. uh, see ITAR data. So again, we're back into the security world and, and the compliance world and you kind of see how governance overlaps those things. Sure. I think an important aspect of being able to govern your, as an IT pro or a service owner, of being able to govern your environment properly is building in some automation mm -hmm. so that you know on a nightly basis you have some automated processes, whether it be through PowerShell or Flow or what have you, yeah. they go out to your sites, they update your index of sites and which ones have been externally shared and contain sensitive data and so on, so that you as a service owner can get a nice dashboard to understand where does your data live, what sensitive data, how is it being shared. So how difficult is that? Because bear in mind we've just spoken about the IT Pro, decided, yes, I'll become a service owner. You just mentioned a whole bunch of things that I need to learn, right? I did. I need to get to grips with labels and classifications. Yep. And where do I start with that? Yep. Um, I may or should be relatively comfortable with PowerShell. Yes. I'll just mention that Flow is quite easy to learn. If it is. you've done any work with uh, if this, then that. Yep. It's a very similar type mechanism, except it's inside your own tenant and Correct. it has that content or that context. So you've just thrown a whole bunch of things at me that I need to start learning about. Yes. How do I do that? So that's a great point. Um, Microsoft has provided a lot of great documentation around this in the uh, docs.microsoft.com uh, environment. So that's mm -hmm. their new platform for documentation. Yeah. And it's actually quite good. It's quite amazing. Um, you know, I've worked with a couple of the teams here at Microsoft to build action plans mm -hmm. around specific compliance regulations. So again, we're kind of getting away from governance into compliance, but I think those, those action plans, they lead into answering your question, right? We have one action plan for GDPR, another for ISO 27001, mm -hmm. and another for NIST 800-53, each of which are very complex, long compliance regulations that will put you to sleep if you're having a hard time sleeping. Yes. Reading them. Um, I spend much of my life reading those. Um, and if you go search, you know, if you go Google on Microsoft GDPR Action Plan or Microsoft ISO Action Plan, NIST Action Plan, you'll get to these. Um, they're published, they're online, and they actually provide you very, um, uh, I'll say, pragmatic, uh, prescriptive guidance on what you can do in the first 30 days, mm -hmm. what you can do in the first 90 days, mm -hmm. and what you can do beyond 90 days to comply with these regulations. Now again, with governance, you may not be needing to comply with these regulations, but they give you a great base to start from. Yeah. I'd like to um, 
ask you a very practical question. So I've decided to start using Teams. And mm -hmm. let's assume I've, I've done something very practical. So what I would do is turn off the ability for any user to create a team. And I've got some kind of a workflow. It could be a form that I fill in SharePoint that has manager approval that allows me to create a team. So I don't necessarily have team sprawl. I have that piece governed. Correct. However, two years from now, I still have a bunch of teams. Maybe six months from now, I want to do a check-in. How do I know if a team is being used? How do I know if there are files being stored in a team? Because as we mentioned, there's a SharePoint component inside a team. Correct. There are instant messages in that team. Correct. How do I know what I can keep? And if there is something to keep, is there a way that I can archive that data? Can I move it to somewhere else, which is maybe more compliant if I'm in a compliant um, industry? Or what do I, how do I, what do I do with this stuff after a while, right? So if it's stale, how do I know if it's stale? A whole bunch of questions there. So I'm using Teams. I may or may not know that I've got data and they don't know how to answer that question. I don't know if I can delete a team. I don't know if it's being used or not. Okay. Where do I go with that? So a lot of great questions in that. So very much agree with the approach you first uh, mentioned of turning off and it's it's turning off the ability for all users to create Office 365 groups. Yeah. That's how you turn off people's ability to create teams. You restrict that to an Active Directory group that only certain people have access to. Yeah. You create a form that people have to fill out when they want a team. It perhaps goes to manager approval. Yeah. In that form, you can ask people, you know, what's the purpose of this? Who's going to access it? There's lots of questions you can ask, and you can record that in like a, an index or a database where you're keeping track of all of these. It could be a SharePoint list, or it could be as big as a database. Um, and um, you could, for some cases, implement automatic approval, and in other cases, go to manager approval, right? With Flow, it's really easy to build mm. that workflow. And then you call some PowerShell to create your team. Yeah. Right? That's a very common practice that we recommend to our clients and we help clients build. Yeah. Right? And to be honest, despite all the discussion of, you know, turn everything on, mm -hmm. I actually think that's that's the approach that the vast majority of companies use yeah. as opposed to turn everything on. Yeah. Um, now, once you've done that and you have people creating teams, you brought up a really good point. What do I do with that data when people stop using the team? So there are a few capabilities you can use. So there is a feature called group expiry, which will actually notify, you know, it'll, it'll track um, the, um, the usage of an Office 365 group. So again, the underlying membership service of a team. Mm -hmm. And when people haven't used it for a period of time, it'll send out notifications. Yeah. And it'll remove people's access as well after an additional certain period of time. Mm -hmm. So in those cases, you can make use of that feature and get notified when people have stopped using a team. Mm -hmm. And then you can certainly look at, um, as an IT pro or as a service owner, an mm -hmm. architect, mm -hmm. migrating that data from the SharePoint site that's storing files and so on into perhaps another SharePoint site or migrating that site somewhere else so that it doesn't get deleted with the group expiry and so that it's archived for a certain period of time. Oh, hang on. You've just mentioned something new. Now I have to learn about how to migrate data inside my tenant. Correct. Can I do that natively or do I need to buy something? So that's a good point. Um, and let me take something back. You don't necessarily have to migrate it. What yeah. you can also do with the new features announced here is you're going to be able to apply a class, a label, 
mm -hmm. um, classification label to a site, mm -hmm. and that can have a retention period. And that will take precedence over the group expiry. So you can have group expiry, get notified, assign a label to it that says it has a seven-year uh, retention, mm -hmm. and then everything in the site will be retained for that period of time. So that's yeah. a nice way to, to keep the data around. You don't necessarily need to migrate somewhere else. But if you do, that's a very good point, because you might want to kind of clean up your environment, move it somewhere else for archival purposes. I'll give you an example. I'm working with a large Canadian church mm -hmm. that literally has a 50-year retention period on data about ministers. Wow. Right? So you put a retention period on for 50 years and keep it, it's probably better, you know, archived somewhere else yeah. for that long a time. So to migrate the data, there's a few, there is some third-party tools available out there that are very good. Mm -hmm. um, there is also, um, Microsoft has, um, with Flow, released some new actions. You can copy and move files mm -hmm. to other places. When it comes to sites, um, you would probably do that through PowerShell mm -hmm. or a third-party tool. There is a SharePoint migration tool, but I don't believe it's really built for migrating, you know, sites to sites yeah. within a SharePoint a SharePoint online environment. Yeah, yeah. I, I think what we should do is mention at this point that everything that we're talking about doesn't actually matter if it's a, a team or a group. It could be a SharePoint site. I might have Correct. SharePoint sprawl. That's right. And I just I need to manage my things inside my tenant. Yeah, yes. the same concepts apply. It does regardless of the the backend technology, really. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So I wanted to touch on and take it just a quick step back and talk about. Um, we were talking about the concept of of IT pros versus essentially service owners. Yeah. Right. And and this is something that I personally am a big advocate for. Uh, and so it's really great for me to hear you say that as well and see that, you know, in my opinion uh, and in my experience, the most successful Office 365 adoptions have been where customers ha were able to, to do that, where they've, they've taken that change in culture and they're able to, to do something where they, they're bringing in someone who's a product owner or multiple product owners. Are you seeing that happen, out, uh, you know, uh, often? I am. Um, I think it's, it depends on the organization, of course. Yep. Some organizations are slower to do that than others. Yeah. Um, I find ones that are more successful are one that do take that approach. Yeah, because I think that's the that's the challenge, right? Is I think many companies they they understand to a certain degree and have accepted the the, the technology change that's yeah. going to happen with 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 Office three sixty five with cloud adoption, yeah. but they haven't necessarily understood or made any attempt to uh, get ahead of the cultural change yeah. mm. that has to happen, yeah. right? And I almost feel like that's a bigger part than a technology yeah. change. Yeah. Uh, and I really w wish there was a way for us to get the, the, the word out there that, you know, you have to take this journey from all aspects. You can't just run away with the technology and that's leave right. the cultural and process change behind. Mm. Yeah. And that affects not just the IT pros, the end users as well, right? Absolutely. Because now they can, you know, unless you put some restrictions in place, users can work anywhere. Mm -hmm. They can work from home, they can work from a Starbucks, they could work from the office. Um, and I've seen companies try to put in restrictions where, okay, people can only access Office 365 from the corporate environment. That tends to hamper a lot of things mm -hmm. and break a lot of things. You can do it, but mm -hmm. it makes it difficult to work. Yeah. And it is kind of old school thinking it if is. you think about it, right? Yeah. It, it, it goes back to the whole, well, you can only access our stuff if you're on a VPN. That's mm. right. right. Um, and it, it, it's a little bit of an older way of always thinking, and it's not... It doesn't necessarily work when you're looking at the way that these modern collaboration platforms are built. That's right. That's right. A lot of them are built for mobile. People now want to be able to work wherever they are. Mm -hmm. Here at this conference, for example, I'm doing all kinds of work. Mm -hmm. um, and if I had to be on the corporate network and VPN all the time, it would just slow me down. Yeah. I think the approach that we want to advocate is we don't want to 
have these lead pipe networks anymore. We want to choose rather to trust nothing. Yeah. We don't trust our own devices. We yeah. don't have to trust our endpoints. Yeah. We choose to wrap security around the information itself and the online identity. That's right. Which is very much the stance that Microsoft has taken. And that allows me to, for example, consume a document on my phone and know that it's my phone, not Chris's phone, yep. because I have an, an identity that ties it to that. But because I don't trust the device, for example, I can, with a MAM policy, I choose to not allow data to leak outside of the application, like Word or SharePoint, leak towards Twitter, as an example. So yep. I can't copy a mail and paste it into Twitter or a, a notepad application. So the approach of I can have my data in a, a trusted manner without actually having to trust the device. Correct. But all of these things make governance easier, right? If you have the categori categorizations and, and you, you, know, you know what type of data and the sensitivity of your data yep. um, and you have the, the correct information protection applied to that data, it makes it easier to know and, and be rest assured that the data is protected, right? Absolutely. So from a, compli a compliance and a governance perspective in particular, it becomes easier. That's yeah. right, that's yeah. right. Um, you've touched on a great point that a lot of people don't realize. So I'd like to go back to the discussion about flow yeah. a moment. And uh, I'd like to bring power apps into the discussion Please. as well. Right, power apps and flow are part of what's called a power platform in Office 365, mm -hmm. right? Power apps being Microsoft's new online uh, form solution for their cloud, not just SharePoint, and Flow being um, their online workflow platform, again, for the Microsoft Cloud, and even beyond the Microsoft Cloud. And what people don't realize is with Flow, you can send data to any endpoint on the internet. Right? It would take me 30 seconds to build a Flow where every time my CEO sends me an email, I grab the contents of that email and I shoot it to Twitter. Yeah. My company wouldn't be happy with me if I did that, right? Sure. And that speaks to, okay, having governance policies in place and controls in place for solutions like Flow and Power Apps as well. Mm -hmm. And there are capabilities built in for that, right? There's some DLP policies in Flow you can use to ring fence connectors so that I can't, connect an, I can't create a Flow that connects an email to Twitter. So it's important to learn about those capabilities as well. That's and the presentation I gave earlier today was on compliance information protection. Yeah, and one of the do you want to list the uh, the 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 session code so people can find that later? Sure, I think it was. I might need to find it. I think it was BRK three two two five, but I will double check it at while we're talking. Sure. Um, so, so let me let me let me ask a, qu a question ahead. here. So we talked about, I guess, um, you know, from a governance perspective, you obviously have a policy that uh, you know you can put physical controls to govern the example you just mentioned right the f a flow that that takes email data and just shoots it out to twitter correct and we can put technology solutions in place for that correct but surely there are also things that we really just can't solve from a technology perspective right and it has to be a, it's a it's a people type of policy that says if you work for our organization you understand that That's our right. policy i mean it's it's like it's like wearing pants right <laughs> <laughs> but you can measure that, Chris. What? You can measure if someone's wearing trousers or not because there's at least a visual inspection and I may have a security Correct. guard or receptionist that says, sorry, you may not enter but, the but, premises. But it's, it's, it's kind of a built-in thing. Like, you know, mo most people know, I get confused sometimes, but most people know that when you leave the house, generally you're going to be wearing pants, right? Yeah. And so 
the same thing applies as when you when you join a company there are a certain set of hr policies and and governance and procedures and things that you that you agree to some of them need to be spelled out mm. because they yep. may differ from from organization to organization yep. some of them are a little bit more inherent i guess mm. um the, the point I'm trying to make is that we can't rely necessarily on technology to, this to is fix true. every problem. This right? is true. Some of it has to come down to organizations understanding that the way of the world has changed and that HR policy or that governance policy that they wrote for email usage back in 1992 has to be updated yeah. to reflect what the modern world and modern you know, 2018 technology can do. Very much so. And you've reminded me of a, a situation we dealt with with a client a few years ago where... Um, what you're speaking to, I think, is, yes, updating that policy, changing the way the company expects people to work uh, to modern times, uh, but then also educating your user population on what that change is. Mm -hmm. So a few years ago, we did a large rollout of a data classification solution to a 110,000 user company. And a big part of that was an education program for the end users mm -hmm. to the point where the organization ran, you know, kind of a small internal marketing campaign in the cafeterias yeah. to teach people, here's our classification labels and here's what they mean. Here's how you use them. Mm -hmm. And they went as far as actually printing those labels on the back of everyone's badge that yeah. they used to get into the building. Yeah. Right? We deal with sensitive info and here's how you categorize it and classify mm. it. Yes. Everybody get up to speed and use it. So mm. definitely changing the policies mm. and then educating everyone on those. You are an enterprise and content management guy. Yes. Now there's a huge shift or there's a, I don't want to call it a fad, but there's definitely a... Um, there's the, the new thing seems to be that I want to switch off my file servers. Yes. And I have two problems there. The one is the whole governance thing that we've been talking about. The other one is, are we going to go down the road of FileShare 2.0? And Right? Yeah. And, and what yeah. is that even? What are the five things that are OneDrive? And, and how does that feature? Yeah. So talk us through, I'm a... I'm a service owner, right? And my managers have just come up to me and given me the instruction of um, we we want to investigate if we can switch off our file servers as okay. opposed to let's just make it a directive, right? Okay. So talk us through that. Where, where do we go from there? Sure. So first of all, there's some content which does not belong in SharePoint and OneDrive. That's a or shock. any of the Microsoft's uh, cloud solutions, right? Think of executable files, MSI files, files that are larger than 15 gigabytes in size, right? Yeah. Sometimes we deal with organizations that have 50 gig CAD files. Those don't work yeah. in Office 365. So yeah. you likely will still have some remnant of file servers anyway. Yeah. So that's one. Yeah. So as we mentioned, some content doesn't belong in SharePoint and OneDrive for business. Yeah. Um, migrating your content from file servers into OneDrive for Business and SharePoint, you know, there's a certain recommended processes that we follow. Mm -hmm. We never recommend doing a lift and shift. Just take the mess you have and put it into SharePoint or OneDrive. We recommend going through a planning exercise and an evaluation exercise of that content, right? A review process of that content, determining what content don't we need to move, right? Is there content we haven't touched in 10 years, mm -hmm. in five years, in three years? Picking some sort of a cutoff and saying, okay, we're gonna leave this content that nobody has touched or even opened in five years behind. We're not gonna move it. Back it That's up and one. delete it? Uh, not yet. Um, let's leave it on the file server for now. The remaining content, okay, we identify what content we wanna migrate into SharePoint and OneDrive. 
We then go through an, or, an exercise of developing an information architecture for SharePoint Online, right? We determine how are we going to organize that information? How are we going to classify it? Yeah. Uh, what metadata columns do we need? What content types do we need? What's our site map going to look like? So that we don't move a mess from one place to another. And we use that also as a model for our collaboration going forward. So that SharePoint and OneDrive, we've gone to all this trouble of migrating it, doesn't turn into FileShare 2.0. Yeah. Okay. Once you've done that, you know, you've, you've defined what your information architecture is going to be, you build it out, then you migrate your content from your file servers, where you've identified you want to migrate, into your file structure. Mm -hmm. And that's a big, long process, mm -hmm. depending on the amount of content you have. It can take weeks, it can take months, it can take years for large organizations. Yeah. Um, often what we do is we try to get the business users to actually reorganize the content on-prem according to the information structure we design. That way when we migrate it, the migration tends to be more successful. Mm. And we try to apply that metadata to the documents as we go. At the same time, we might apply Office 365 labels as well. That way people can start assigning the retention periods and sensitivity to that content in the cloud. Right, we can start collecting and harvesting what information is sensitive. So we are governing while we are migrating. Correct, that's a great way to put it. Um, once you've done that migration and you've gone through you know, an education exercise and a launch plan to launch this new great environment, what we do is we recommend putting the file share into a read-only state yeah. for a period of time. Mm. Um, that way, if for whatever reason you, you didn't migrate a file, or there's content that you decided not to migrate that some executive suddenly says, oh, I really do need this in the cloud, you can still go get it and move it. Mm -hmm. right? You might leave it in a read-only state for six months, yeah. and then after that, what you do is you turn off access. You still leave the file server there in case someone screams and still wants access, but you don't allow anyone to put anything new in there yeah. um, while it's in that, that read-only state. Then you turn off access, and you wait. You mm -hmm. wait three or six months, if nobody complains that they can't get at the file server, then perhaps you back it up and delete it. But you want that decommissioning process to be well structured, well governed, if you will. I, I love how on the in the on-premises world, a lot of the finding out if something is in use or not is waiting to see if somebody complains if I switch it off. Yes. And the concern that we have is when we lower the friction of service creation because it's in cloud, that is just so easy to have ungoverned and potentially ungovernable sprawl Correct. of information. Correct. Yeah, we, um, we spent years hearing from Microsoft and others to avoid site sprawl. Mm -hmm. And now everything we do creates a site. Yeah. And everyone wants to turn on, yeah, turn everything on. And I think we're just going to get to a point of having site sprawl again that we're going to have to clean up. Yeah, yeah. But we'll see. Antonio, we want to thank you for your time. But before we let you go, you are a, an MVP. Correct. And that means that you've got something to plug. So if you'd like to tell us how people can find you. Sure. And what is it that you are currently passionate about in terms of your MVP journey? Okay. Um, so as I mentioned, I'm a seven-time MVP. Started off as a SharePoint MVP, bringing an Office 365 MVP through all the different naming conventions that have been used. Yeah. Um, I'm very passionate about SharePoint and collaboration within SharePoint mm -hmm. in a well-secured, well-governed way. Yeah. I tend to think of myself as a security and privacy geek. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the privacy world is is large. There's a lot of privacy regulations out there with a lot of detail. I find those things very interesting. Mm -hmm. um, 
if I can boil that down, one thing that's really interesting to me is educating people on the security tools that are available to them and how they can make use of them in Office 365. Wonderful. I hate it when people say to me, um, we can't move to Office 365 because it's not secure. Yeah. And I go off on a crazy tirade trying to explain to them all of the security measures that are in place. So that's in a nutshell what I'm proud of. Um, they can get in touch with me at my email address if anyone has any questions. So antonio.mayo, M-A-I-O, at protivity.com. And my blog is um, www.trustsharepoint.com. And I'm about to launch a new blog, um, antonio365.com. Wonderful. Very nice. <laughs> Could we ask you just to spell your domain name for the folks who are listening? Sure. So um, it's www.antonio365.com. Same with your email address? antonio.mao at Protivity, P-R-O-T-I-V-I-T-I dot com. Wonderful. Um, anything on Twitter or LinkedIn you'd like to mention? Yes, great point. Um, so I am on Twitter. I tweet occasionally um, at uh, Antonio Mayo 2. And Antonio Mayo the second. <laughs> I, yeah. yeah. Unfortunately, Antonio Mayo was taken by a motorcycle racer in Italy. Oh, look at that. And he's, he probably doesn't care <laughs> he's, about Who's living the life I, I sometimes <laughs> wish I had. Yes. <laughs> Antonio, thank you so much for making the time to speak to us. We appreciate you taking the time out of your schedule. Thank you for this opportunity. This has been great. Awesome. Thank you. Hey, everyone. Before you go, we just wanted to say thank you for listening. We really enjoy putting this podcast together for you every two weeks. Please visit us at thearchitects.cloud or alternatively drop us a tweet. We'd love to hear what you have to say. At the Cloud Arc. <laughs>